Take your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation. Or the apocalypse is also an appropriate term for it, though most of your English translations don't take that one. Revelation 1, 9 through the end of the first chapter. All right, this is God's Word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, we do ask that your spirit would work in us. That we would think your thoughts after you. You have spoken them. Here we have them read. We ask now that you would equip us as we think them. May your word be preached. For Christ's sake. Amen. Um, 
One of the things in good literature that is a kind of an interesting thing to look at if you read lots of books or read lots of short stories or novels or things like that, but is how the, the main character is first introduced. You know, sometimes they, they love to introduce the main character as this kind of humble thing at the beginning so that you can watch the progression and the growth take place as they go. Or maybe they're introduced as very smart and very marvelous. If you like to read Sherlock Holmes, that's usually how it's introduced. He's solving some sort of very clever puzzle at the beginning so that you have a glimpse of how brilliant he is so the rest of the story makes sense so he's not just some eccentric jerk but instead a brilliant genius. John understands that he's got a thing for introductions. You remember his introduction to the gospel, right? In the beginning was the word, he's kind of a famous one, one that we remember because he's introducing and his is used to magnificent effect in the gospel of John. He's introduced Jesus as the eternal son of God, the agent of creation, and then immediately drops this bomb on us that his people have rejected him. Oh, what's going on? How can the very son of God who is God be rejected by his people? How is it that he is the light and the darkness rejects him? It's a marvelous introduction to a gospel. And as it continues through, you see those forces at work throughout the rest of the book. Again, remember, John's that artist. He loves to paint with vibrant kind of themes throughout the book. Well, here in Revelation, he one-ups John chapter 1, so to speak. That one, it's delivered in the abstract, introducing Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the agent of creation who is rejected by his people. Now we get to see Jesus in his glory. Now he's, he's not introduced in the kind of veiled prophecy of the one who's coming, but he's introduced in glory. It's like John here takes the veil and peels it back a little bit so that we get a a brief glimpse into what heaven looks like just a little bit more clearly. You remember... Last week, if you were here, if you've read this before, and the first part of what we looked at last week, 1 through 8, it's, it's a message that's given. This is a revelation. It is this great and grand message that God the Father gives to Jesus Christ. It's delivered by an angel to, to John, and it is delivered specifically through signs and pictures and symbols. John tells us that at the end of verse 1, it's going to be really comforting because Jesus is actually going to do that here in this passage. So if we didn't understand or trust John, we can trust Jesus because he's going to do it. 
But as we thought about it, we realized, and I'm kind of explaining, this is taking place in 95, 96 AD, about that time. It's under Emperor Domitian, and Domitian has solidified power into the emperor's office. Uh, he has all kinds of kind of sycophants around him that are referring to him as a, a god, uh, one of the gods of Rome. He's already made his brother a divine god in the Roman pantheon of gods. And now we know persecution is coming. And John is writing to the Christians to prepare them. Persecution's already happening, but it's going to increase. Be ready for Rome. In fact, actually, if you're really going to kind of sum up the book in a phrase, that would be a really kind of catchy one. It's not the best one yet. We're going to find that out later. But it would be a catchy one. Be ready for Rome. Be ready for Rome. In fact, actually, this is how John starts this section as he explains, Hi, I, John, this is who I am, your brother, your partner in the tribulation of the kingdom of the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I read it that way on purpose with all three of those connected because as he introduces himself as John, he immediately introduces what's called a dative clause of a whole bunch of words that are all linked together. In English, we don't use kind of identifying, um, we don't parse our verbs, we don't conjugate anything. We, ours is very simple language in that regard. Uh, it ends up being a bit more vocabulary heavy. Theirs, you could link things with how you modify them, what case and tense and things you put them in. And here, all three of these are linked into one specific clause. So that when he says, I, John, he's, I am John who is joined with you in one thing. And the one thing that I'm joined with you in has three specific parts. I'm already joined with you in it because it's already happening. I am joined with you because it's already happening. I'm joined with you in the tribulation. It's already happening. I'm joined with you in the kingdom, which is already happening. And I'm joined with you in the patient endurance, the perseverance, that is in Jesus Christ, which is already happening. It's one clause, three parts already happening. You're like, man, Michael, you're already taking shots at my beloved doctrine to say that the, the, the tribulation already started by the time John's even writing this. Yes, that's true. We're not waiting for it. It already happened. And here's how we know this. Look at what he immediately follows it up with. I, John, the one who is joined with you in these three activities right now, joined with you in the tribulation, joined with you in the kingdom, joined with you in the patient endurance, was on the island of Patmos. Well, we know what Patmos was. That's actually very well documented. Patmos was a penal colony. It was an island that was about, uh, what is it, 10 by 6 miles, 10 miles by 6 miles, that all of the exiles of Rome were placed in. If you were banished from the Roman Empire, I mean, think about it. If, if you, it's kind of being banished from the known world. Like, where do you go? If you've been banished from every known place on earth, where do you go? Well, there's nowhere else to go, so they instead banished them to one specific island, an island called Patmos. This is where all of the criminals lived. It was a fairly rotten place. 
But interestingly, John explains to us why he's been banished from Rome and why he's living in basically a prison island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Oh, John's been faithfully preaching and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where he has somehow made somebody angry, and it has made it all the way up to Domitian's rank, most likely. And John's been exiled by the very emperor himself. He's been exiled, banished, for preaching. A faithful man. Now, the other thing that's kind of interesting to think about is, I mean, remember the ministry of Jesus. He's living and dying, and his ministry is around 30, 33, you know, uh, A.D., 30 A.D. is a good number. This is taking place in 95, so you're thinking at youngest, John is probably in his mid to late 70s at youngest. He's not a young man anymore, certainly not in this time. I mean, young now, not young then. And this old man has been preaching and has been faithfully proclaiming the gospel and has drawn the persecution of Rome. That's why he's able to say to these churches that I am your partner in the tribulation. The tribulation's already begun. How can he say that? Because he's literally already experiencing it. He's already been exiled. He's already been persecuted. For all he knows, this is where he will die. Now we know that's not where he's going to die. Domitian is going to pass away. Uh, It's going to be executed by the Senate. Uh, The next guy is going to come in, a guy named Nerva. It's a dude, amazing to think of, a Nerva name, but it's a guy. He's uh, emperor for two years before he dies of natural causes. He undoes all of Domitian's work, tries to put power back at the Senate level instead of uh, at the emperor, and releases John as part of that. But it is interesting how John is not, he doesn't know that data yet. He doesn't know that information, but he's acknowledging we're already in the midst of these things. And it's interesting, too, how the three things are so intricately linked. The tribulation, the persecution that comes of the people of God is intimately linked with the kingdom. Which is an excellent understanding of what Jesus says in his ministry, doesn't he? Repent. When do we repent? Well, right now, why do we repent right now? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's it's now. And Jesus acknowledges all throughout his ministry that if you are a part of my kingdom, if you are a part of my people, how will they treat you? Well, they will hate you because they have hated me. If you have the aroma of Christ, if you belong to his kingdom, belong to his people, you will immediately be hated by the world because your very existence is a condemnation to them. But even as God's Christ's kingdom exists and it brings with it difficulty as well as excellencies, there is the patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus. All of these three knit together. Again, it's why we acknowledge from the very beginning, this is a letter that's preparing God's people for persecution to increase. It's be ready for Rome. Rome is coming. 
And we have, an, I mean, the next 220 years, 235 years, it's going to be bad, almost all of it, for the Christians. They will die in droves for the next two centuries and change. Be ready for Rome. Now, it's interesting as John is explaining the need for his letter. Look, the tribulation's begun. The persecution has begun. It's going to get worse, but it's here. The kingdom is here. It's growing, but it's here. It's in the midst of that that the main character of the book shows up. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the Lord Christ. Here comes the one who was and is and always will, always will be. And what is he going to be like? Here is the one who's going to be victorious over the difficulties, the tribulation. Here is the one who is the king of the kingdom. Here is the one who provides the patient endurance. What is he going to be like? And again, if we were kind of brilliant genius Bible scholars, we would go back and think, well, it'd be interesting. I mean, expecting John chapter 1, you're expecting a marvelous Jesus who's rejected. A marvelous Jesus who's murdered. Is that what we get here? Well, I already read it to you. You know, that's not the answer. We can end the sermon right here, right? No, instead he introduces us with this intriguing portrait of who Christ is. Using all kinds of Old Testament illustrations. In fact, one uh, commentator, a lovely little kind of turn of phrase, he said, if we were going to unravel all of the Old Testament allusions in these 13 verses or so, it would be like trying to unravel the rainbow. The entire set of verses here are Old Testament allusions just wrapped on top of each other. It starts on a Sunday. Verse 10, I was on the Lord's day. And then he immediately uses language to call us to think of Ezekiel. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was just like Ezekiel was, captured by the Spirit of God. What that probably means is that while he's doing something on Sunday, the Spirit of God descends upon him and he went into a trance of sorts. We know from Ezekiel, one time he did it, it was in the middle of what we would call like a town hall meeting with the elders uh, of the town, maybe a session meeting. (laughs) He just goes into a trance right there in the middle of it. You think, wow, that had to have been really weird to look at. Here he's taken in a trance into these heavenly places where he receives God's revelation and is introduced to Christ Jesus. And as he goes up and meets with God, it's verse 10, he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet there using the language of Exodus 19 and 20 to introduce the Lord Christ. Now, this is extremely important if you're thinking big picture Bible. Most of us as New Testament Christians, most of us having grown up in the church, we are constantly comfortable interchanging, talking about Jesus Christ and divinity all of the time. It's something we never think about. 
In fact, actually, we err on the other side where we interchange attributes of God the Father and Jesus Christ maybe a little bit too comfortably. Sometimes where I'm like, you do know they're different people, right? Three persons. But it's interesting what John does here in Exodus 19 and 20, uh, the, the voice of the trumpet coming. That is specifically a description of God the Father. The divine voice of God is now no longer applied solely to the Father, but it's, it's actually being applied to Christ Jesus. Highlighting the continuity of the closeness of the Father and the Son. It's all of those wonderful, beautiful, lovely statements that Jesus has made in John's Gospel. I and the Father are one. If you wish to know the Father, you must know the Son. We are clo- we're knit together. We are a triune God. Here we see it even in his description. And this voice of God comes, Christ's voice, like a loud trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, a scroll, 16-foot scroll specifically, to send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It's interesting, one of the commentators asked, what an interesting thought. Do you think John recognized that voice? I mean, you remember, he was a young man. He was young. He spent time with Jesus. I mean, to the point where we actually have record of him, you know, in moments of difficulty and consternation, resting his head on Jesus' chest. You think he heard, you know, six decades later and went, Jesus, you know, and turned around excited about his friend that he had not seen in so long. But then he gets the command to write this book to the churches which in English doesn't really entirely pull this to mind, but it's Exodus 17, Isaiah 30, verse 8, Jeremiah 37, verse 2, and Habakkuk 2, 2, all rolled into one, pulling out God's commission for a prophet to record prophecy. This is Old Testament verbiage of God about to deliver something specific. And again, us being New Testament Christians that read in English and honestly don't spend enough time in the Old Testament, we would miss that this is the language specifically of judgment. This is not the, hey, I'm about to take a memo, would you please write it? This is not the, I'm about to dictate something, could you get out your pencil for some shorthand? This is, I am about to pronounce judgment on my enemies, you better Write it down. It's not happy wording. It's tough. It's commissioned for prophecy against Israel. Think again of what we read there in Isaiah. Who will go for us? Oh, here I am, send me. (laughs) Okay, great, here's your ministry. You're going to preach damnation on Israel forever. I don't like it. How long? Until my wrath is full. I really don't like it. And the problem here is that the ones that are immediately named are seven churches. And you go, well, why these seven? One, um, again, recognizing seven's already been introduced, that idea of fullness, a full week. It's the totality. It means everything. It's a full number, the sum total. But specifically, interestingly, we think, as best we can tell, these seven cities, they're listed kind of geographically in a, I think, clockwise motion. Well, for you, it'd be clockwise motion. Uh, they're the, the centers of the postal routes of the area. If you needed to send mail, 
you would send it to Pergamum, and then from Pergamum it would be distributed to the region around. He's basically going, these are all of your major hubs. Uh, If we're going to talk about it today, it might be better to say like Atlanta and Charlotte and Cincinnati and all of your flight hubs for where all of your airlines locate. This is how you get information to the ends of the earth. He's about to deliver a message that is addressed to seven churches, but is explicitly intended for everyone. Wow. That's a little different than the introduction in John chapter 1. I mean, in John chapter 1, we had the rejected Jesus. We had the glorious Jesus who was being shunned by his people. This is something different. We have the judge show up. We have the divine Christ, one intimately connected with the Father. We have King Jesus show up. with a message of judgment. Verse 12. Again, John knows what's going on at this point. This turnaround, I I suspect by this point, he's realized this is... He's going to be excited to be in the presence of God. But he also knows what's about to come is not entirely going to be a happy message. This is not, you know, when you get a birthday card and you open it up and you're excited because you know whatever inside, whatever is inside on a birthday card is going to be good. Unless it's, you know, that hateful relative that sends you the troll cards that makes fun of how old you are. Inside, unless it's from them, you know whatever's inside the card is going to be positive. This is not going to be one of those. He turns to see the voice that was speaking and then it gets weird. Well, it does to us. It doesn't to him. He turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. That's odd. Things I wasn't expecting to have in the list of what he would see. A bunch of lampstands. Specifically seven of them. But what he's highlighting with this is, is he's trying to capture a portrait of when he turns to look at the Lord Christ here, he's not just seeing Jesus completely out of context. It's being delivered amongst a backdrop of something so that we have a little bit of setting. Seven golden lampstands, specifically referencing the lampstands of Exodus 25 and 37 and Numbers chapter 8. You remember the tabernacle had a lampstand that would shine light in God's holy place. The temple would then have ten lampstands, five on either side, that would shine light into God's holy place. And in Zechariah chapter 4, specifically verses 2 and 10, the lampstand is used as an image of the entire temple. So that when you talked about the temple in Zechariah, all you mentioned was the lampstand, and it captured it all. It's a fancy literary term called a synecdoche. It's where you refer to one thing that captures all of them. And we do this all the time where we talk about families in the church and we'll say, yes, one person. Well, Carol was there. Well, the hopes were there. We understand that. We use one person, but we capture the whole family through the one person. 
So what we have here in this setting is already referencing we're in a temple where this is taking place. Ooh. Hang on. Hang on a minute. How is this in a temple? Because remember, we, we know this is 95 AD. How are we in a temple? Because what's happened to the temple? Well, the temple's been destroyed. How are we in a temple? We're in the heavenly temple. We're, John's been taken up into the holy place, into the heavenlies, and into the heavenly temple where he has this kind of symbolic arrangement of the light of God behind this one Jesus. And then it continues to describe, in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, that's Daniel, uh, clothed with a long robe, that's Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Ezekiel 9, with a gold sash across his chest. So he's got a glowing white robe that runs, you know, down to his ankles and such. And then he has a magnificent, glorious golden belt sash that runs across the front, which we know from Isaiah 22 tells us it's the portrait of a priest. But interestingly, this is not simply the portrait of a normal priest. We know that's not how normal priests dress. It's not even how high priests dress. Remember, they would have the ephod with the fun, you know, funny uh, stones across the front, the 12 stones to represent the tribes of Israel. No, this is how a king priest dressed. That's why it's such a unique portrait is we have here a priest, but not just a priest, not just a high priest. This is a king priest. We have the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is described in terms of God Almighty and now as the priest in the heavenly temple. The mediator between God and man. He's clothed in this long robe with this golden sash. But John doesn't stop there. And in verse 14 continues directly into Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Ezekiel 9 in explaining the glory that this priest king has with him. The hairs of his head were white like wool. That does not simply mean like I have. I'm going a little gray on the sides, and by a little I mean a lot. It means his hair was white and radiant white. Like it's not a passive white. It's an active white. It glows. It exudes glory. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Does that mean he had like burning in his eyeballs like they draw in the cartoons? No. (laughs) It means that light exudes from them. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. Uh, We don't know the word bronze that's actually put in there. It could be adamantium for all we know. It's a metal that we don't understand. But what we do understand is that it's refined in a furnace. And what happens to metal when you refine it in a furnace? If you've ever watched How It's Made, which is the greatest show in television history, you can see all different forms of metal be heated to the point of being liquid. It glows so bright. You've seen, right, the welding helmets that they have to, you have to cover your eyes because it will burn your retinas out. His feet, this kind of moral purity that his ministry is built upon, is so radiant that you can't even look at it. 
In his hand, he has seven stars. We'll get to that in a minute. Out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. That's slightly bizarre. We'll get to that in a minute. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. As a child, you learn, don't stare at the sun because the sun, though it is a bajillion miles away, is so strong and so bright, it will burn your eyes out. And here, John is standing next to it. I mean, that's in essence what he's describing is the portrait of a man who looks like he's clothed in the sun. It's so bright, it's all-consuming. Again, it's the language of Daniel, Ezekiel. You remember what happened to Ezekiel when he saw this, right? He saw God the Father clothed this way, and he turns into a puddle of human goo and sits there for so long that God has to send his Holy Spirit to be like, Ezekiel, it's time to get up, friend. You have to move. Ezekiel's like, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do anything. I'm in trauma shock. No, you have to get up and go. Again, a little different than John chapter 1. John chapter 1, it was hinted at that this is the one who is God Almighty. This is the one who is light incarnate. And now we see in Revelation 1, oh, he's not joking. This is light in human form. It's brilliance incarnate. The king priest clothed in glory, delivering a message of judgment. And that, that's the scary part, is that he's delivering a message of judgment. And again, we got to see that with this two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. It's his equipment for fighting. It's he's ready to administer judgment. This We know at this point, the two-edged sword, both the sharpest and the most powerful weapon kind of known to man at this time. The Roman sword was, the gladius was a thing of terrible, terrible beauty. Thousands and thousands died on its blade. Here you have this divine priest king clothed in glory, coming to administer judgment, bringing with him the greatest and scariest weapon known to man that is empowered by God. And you can see why John's response, even though he's known this Jesus, his entire adolescence was spent with him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. No joke you did. And I, I'd pause at this point and maybe inter, interject just a little bit of commentary kind of on how the American church and how we tend to think about who God is. We have lost collectively the fear of God. Now, part of that is, is a good thing in the sense of we understand the gospel so well that there's an aspect where we say, well, I know I don't have wrath anymore because Jesus paid it. And I'm, that's really a good thing. I'm proud of that, that. You should believe that. That's right. But we've lost that sense of respect that comes from knowing the mighty power of who God is. 
I remember as a kid when I, I realized that like the snake charmers in India, you know, where they have the cobra and they play the little, little, little you know, and the, the cobra comes out of the pot and they'll, you know, pet the top of the cobra's head or do all those kinds of things. And as a kid, it freaked me out until I found out that what had happened is they had removed its fangs and removed its poison gland and it was dying. And the whole reason why the man whose pet it was could disrespect the animal was because it's dying. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times we as an American church, that's how we've interacted with our God. Because we think that he's lost his teeth. And we think that he's lost his power, that he's lost his judgment, that he's lost his wrath, that he's lost his discipline. And we show him no respect at all. And though we wouldn't say, oh, of course, it's because he's sick and dying. But maybe that's actually how we think about it. John continues, which is with one of perhaps the most encouraging bits of the entire part. This is uh, fantastic. He sees Jesus. He falls at his feet, turns into a puddle of human And Jesus lays his right hand on him, the one with the stars, and says, Fear not, don't be afraid. And the the thing that follows after fear not is always the, the most important part. Because, you know, let's say we're, again, use the cobra illustration. If a real life cobra that was fit and, you know, venomous in, in the room in here, and I'm going, Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Is that a good thing to listen to? No, of course not. Because I, I'm just lying to you at that point. You should be afraid. You should be very afraid. Because if it gets you, you're going to die. And there's nothing we can do about that. You better get away from it. Don't, you know, don't listen. Be very afraid. Here it's interesting. Why is Jesus going to say, don't be afraid? Is it because God's lost his teeth? He has no ability left. <laughs> no, that's not what he says. He says, I, Jesus, I, the one that you've known, the one that you spent your adolescence with, the one that you watched die and be resurrected, I am, boom, there's your key, shocking, divine language, I am God, I am the first and the last, again, using the language of the almighty God, I am the living one. What a term for the one that this man watched die 60 years earlier. I am the one that death could not hold. I am the living one. I died. He really and truly died. And behold, it didn't work. I am alive forevermore. And not only am I alive forevermore, Jesus says, I conquered. I have the keys of death and hell. I have conquered them to the point that here I have access to them. I've conquered them. I can do with them what I wish for they are now mine. I am victorious over them. Don't be afraid of me, he says, because I am victorious and in me you are too. This is a a beautiful thing. Again, if, if you've understood the language, the first part of this was be very afraid because God is here in judgment. And then what does he say? Yes, but the judgment isn't yours. He's coming. But not for you. 
but not for you. 19, therefore, write what you've seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. The grammar 19 is super complicated. I'll be upfront about that. But again, what he's highlighting here, Jesus is highlighting when he talks to John, is that this is not just something that's only future oriented. It's already started. This is already happening. Tribulation already happening. Kingdom already happening. Hope into the future already happening. Running out of time already happening. I only have 12 more minutes of stuff to talk about three minutes to do it. As for the mystery, the final part here, as for the mystery, he references Daniel 2.29. Jesus explains to us what the stars in the right hand are. And using the exact interpretive method that John introduced to us in verse 1, Jesus explains these stars and these lampstands are entirely symbolic. The stars represent the churches. The lampstands represent, um, I'm sorry, the stars represent the angels of the churches. The lampstand represent the churches. Uh, What he's highlighting with this is these, these seven things, the seven stars and the seven lampstands represent the churches of God, both in their earthly and in their heavenly location. He's using that term angel to kind of capture the representative heavenly nature of each of these churches. It's why all of the letters in chapter 2 are going to be addressed in the singular, not in the plural. So when he writes a letter to the church in Laodicea, it's in the singular because he's writing to the angel, the messenger, the heavenly representative of that church. You think, what a weird thing to end with. And I would say, actually, no, this is the most marvelous bit of it all. And it's a shame that I've squandered my time such that we don't get to spend more energy on it. It's intriguing that here Jesus revealing himself to be the divine priest king ends with a statement of, I still work in my church. These seven stars, these seven lampstands, the churches of God, I'm still in them. I'm still working in them. I'm still doing things. I'm gathering and perfecting my people, which again, today we go, well, yeah, duh, obviously, except when you're an old man sitting on Patmos thinking you're getting ready to die under the persecuting hand of Rome. At what point do you begin to question and begin to wonder and begin to think it's too hard? We had some that went to Andrew Brunson's uh, sermon and talk at RTS a couple of weeks ago, and that was Andrew Brunson's a, a EPC ARP pastor who was imprisoned in Turkey for multiple years. And that was the thing he said the first year, the entire first year, he spent wondering if his faith would crack because he thought it did. And it wasn't until the second year imprisoned for his faith where he began to actually understand God is faithful. God is true. He has not left me. Those are people that are early because I'm running late. It's beautiful that here you have the divine Christ in all of his glory standing in front of the old man John who's been persecuted, who's been suffering and saying to him, John, old man, do not forget I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. I am with you always even to the end of the age. None of us are on Patmos. I have not yet been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. It could happen. I have no idea. We all, however, will endure difficulty. 
And I love how John's solution to the upcoming difficulty that the church there will face and the church today faces is twofold. One, to see Christ in his glory. And two, is to see him as priest still caring for the church. He is still glorious. And he still cares for you. He's not left you. He's not going to. Let's thank God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this portrait of the divine Christ. Oh, we love him. And we ask that you would make us know him, worship him, glorify him even more. For Christ's sake, amen.